0: Make Real specialises in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereal.co.uk slash activists.
1: Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark internationally famous author, blogger, and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore 2,500 years of thought and theorizing about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. This time, we explore the roots of AI learning. Once the stuff of science fiction, artificial intelligence is now a part of everyday life. But the story of how it came into being and the vital role played by researchers who probe the way we think and learn is not often told.
0: Welcome to this episode of Great Minds on Learning, the first in a new season, our fourth, in fact. I'm here with Professor Donald Clark, my mentor and guide in this journey along the highways and byways of learning theory, as I stumble along in his wake, uncomprehending. This time we're tackling artificial intelligence and learning, and I think I may do a fair bit of stumbling here because artificial intelligence really is a bit mathsy, but there are few people more qualified to open this subject up for us than Donald. He literally wrote the book. He's written a book called Iron Learning, link in show notes. He does it himself. Uh, he has a company that uh, creates Iron Learning. And he was witness to some of its early developments at Dartmouth College in the, the, the last century, which I'll, I'll leave it to him to tell you about. First, Donald, there's an important question that needs to be settled. After an online seminar you participated in recently, which I watched very good, run by a friend of the podcast, Leonard Hooks. Someone tweeted, I'm worried that Donald Clark has transmuted to become some kind of AI deity. Was he really there? Were we just listening to a Donald chat GPT <laughs> bot? We need to know the truth. So, Donald, do oh. we need to give you a Turing test? Can you <laughs> prove you're you and not some AI-generated deep deepfake?
2: Well, that, yeah, a lot of people put that in Twitter, you know, and, and it happened by accident, actually. My camera wasn't working on uh. Zoom. So they heard this sort of spectral voice coming out of the darkness you uh, uh, for a full hour, as it were. Uh, but Actually, it was the, there was a very interesting real example of that which was related to podcasts because I don't know if you noticed that you saw that recently. It was just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, Joe Rogan and Steve Jobs, who's no longer with us, of course, did yeah. a completely AI generated podcast. Everything was oh, okay. generated uh, using AI. Now, the crazy thing about this podcast, which I've listened to, is that at the beginning it's a bit clunky and so on, you know, but then suddenly it gets quite good. And then suddenly you find yourself forgetting that Steve Jobs is actually dead, and it seems like a real conversation. So so I think the podcast it blew my mind really, But the way in which we can be drawn in, you know, we think that things produced by AI are actually real human beings. It was a real, it's almost a Turing test thing, but I really advise anybody to look that up and have a listen. Try and get through the first five, 10 minutes. It's about 20 minutes long. Because uh, yeah. the second half is absolutely astonishing. You know, they go into a lot of detail about real products. Uh, at one point, Steve Jobs, I remember it stuck in my mind, actually. He says that he, he compared Adobe's project uh, products, Uh, This is Steve Jobs. He used the analogy of a car where you have to buy all four wheels separately and then assemble your own car, which was a brilliant answer, but completely generated by the AI. Quite creative response in many ways and typical of the thing that Steve Jobs would have said and Uh, in his voice. So they've sampled the voices.
0: Not Michael Fassbender's voice.
2: <laughs> no, no. <laughs>
0: okay, so can you introduce us to this group of theorists we're covering this time? Sad confession, I hadn't heard of any of them. And I note the absence of several people I have heard of, such as uh, Marvin Minsky, Kurzweil, Nick Bolton, and so on. Uh, I'm sh- I, Minsky has a bit part in um, this episode. I'm sure there's good reasons for those exclusions, but tell us about the ones who made the cut.
2: Yeah, so to think about the proposition that we're tackling today, John, you know, we have a neuroscience, as it were, looking at the brain, looking at neurons, and then we have artificial intelligence with all that language about neural networks, uh, layered ne- neural networks. And right now, <laughs> as we speak, it's gone crazy on the internet, almost a global meme, the whole chat GTP thing. So this has landed in people's laps. They suddenly see how amazing it is and at the same time they're getting a bit scared by it because it's incredibly powerful now it hasn't surprised me because i was working with gtp with way, way back when it was first released and that uh, that was a couple of years ago and indeed i spent a long time and as you know In the AI thing, when I was at Dartmouth, that's Ivy League College in the US. It's famous because in 1956, which was the year of my birth, they had the famous AI conference with John McCarthy. That's where the term artificial intelligence was coined or invented. And some amazing stuff was done there. And then all my life, I've been interested in it. In the 1990s, with Clive Shepherd, we did an intelligent tutoring program using very primitive uh, hardware and software at the time, and nearly killed us. Uh, But that was a learning program using AI, what was then called intelligent tutoring. And then more recently at Learning Pool, as a director, we sold Learning Pool quite recently, 2021 for $200 million. And that's because we had built an AI learning company, really, there. And that, that was an astonishing achievement, I think, because it was a more traditional LMS, content authoring language type company. But as soon as we supercharged the company with a sort of smart platform, LXP, AI, data, uh, learning record store stuff, then uh, we, it went through the roof and we won one of the biggest training contracts in the, in the world on the back of that. And I, I have my own company, of course, doing the consultancy and content builds. So I've invested in it, written a book in it, blogged about it, traveled the world speaking about it, mm-hmm. and so on. But I think these people are dear to my heart because it's an untold story here. So I'm going to start with a neuroscientist, and that's Eric Kandel, who who is a a neuroscientist and actually a neuroscientist who has a Nobel Prize. One would think that the learning community might know somebody because he's probably the only person, uh, other than Daniel Kahneman, perhaps, who has a Nobel Prize in this field. But Mm -hmm. nobody has heard of him. But he studied learning uh, in a neuro. Neuroscientists, sort of way, and got the Nobel Prize for it. So we'll look at the neuroscientist bit first, and then we'll look at the other side. So when we're comparing, let's say, neurons to neural networks, we have this amazing history from Hebb through uh, McCulloch and Pitts uh, and Rosenblatt. These people are all dead now. This is, you know, we're talking about going back across the whole of the twentieth century, really, it took these amazing brains to come up with these amazing. Artificial artifacts that reflected the brain, and then more recently we'll look at uh, Rumelhart, Hinton, and Lacoon. I mean, some of these names are—if you're in AI—they are the gods of AI, as it were. You know, not only for the theoretical but practical work. And then Hassabis, who's the chief exec of uh, DeepMind in London, but really the beating heart of Google. So this is a an untold but fascinating story, I think.
0: So let's get on with the story. Sure. First of all, Eric Kandel, uh, 1929, he was born still among us. Eric Richard Kandel is an Austrian-born American medical doctor. Um, and it's a theme with these people, isn't it? That There's a kind of, uh, it, it's the grey squidgy stuff as well as the psychology stuff. Yeah. Um, he specialised in psychiatry, a neuroscientist and a professor of biochemistry and biophysics at the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University. He was a recipient of the 2000 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, as you said, for his research on the physiological basis of memory storage in neurons. The yeah. important stuff for this episode. He was okay. born in 1929 in Vienna. Um, his mother was Ashkenazi Jewish from what is now the Ukraine, uh, very much disputed territory as, as we were recording. And the family fled persecution by the Nazis uh, and moved to Brooklyn, USA, uh, just before the Second World War. I mean, that's another thing. Uh, you know, that, that diaspora is such a theme of um, this series of uh, great minds. At Harvard, his major was history and literature, but he became interested in learning and memory. Psychology at Harvard at that point was dominated by B.F. Skinner, who we've covered in a previous episode, but people will have heard of anyway. But Kandel's work is very different from Skinner's. It's essentially centered on an explanation of the relationship between psychology and neurology. Um, and as, as you probably tell us, Skinner, wasn't interested in any of those things. at the moment's was a black box. This might lead to think of us perhaps of a, as a cognitivist, but really his work on neuroscience and learning points forward to a 21st century preoccupations. Neuroscience very big since um the turn of the millennium. But Donald, what is his relevance to artificial intelligence?
2: Yeah, well, he, he gets this Nobel Prize uh, for his work, not on the human brain, which is important here, uh, but on a thing called a sea snail or a a sea slug uh, called a californica. It's about a foot and a half long. It's a sort of horrible, spongy, sluggish type creature with tentacles coming off it. It yeah. looks very strange, in fact. But it's a creature that is worth studying because it has about 20,000 neurons. And that's enough to make it a sort of active, proactive learning creature, but enough that's manageable to study in a lab. Okay, so... It's got, these, these neurons are up, they're, the neurons in this creature are up to about a millimeter in length, so they're really quite long and big. <laughs> so mm. he did a lot of very detailed lab work using that particular creature. He's neither a cognitive nor a behavioral science, really, he's what you would call a neurobiologist or a neuroscientist. Mm. He's looking for insights primarily into learning and memory, memory being the big thing here. So his insight, to jump to the conclusions for a minute, so he was the first person that recognized that the functional and biochemical features of nerves and synapses, and things like snails and worms and flies, he also used the Drosphilia uh, fruit flies, are not substantially different from we, as, from we mammals and humans, okay? So you can perhaps draw conclusions from those structures to our brains because we evolved along from that type of creature, okay? Mm -hmm. So, he's working on these giant marine slugs or snails, and had a focus on memory, you know, how we, uh, first of all, procedural memories, and that's how the slug actually fears prey or reacts to prey, finds food at the bottom of the ocean off the Californian coast uh, coast where they live. But he then moves also into explicit or declarative memory, the sort of facts and events that that one can recall, you know, and plan off into the future. And his finding here is that, long, that sort of long-term storage, what we call long-term memory, involves gene activation, the creation of so these new proteins and new synaptic connections. He actually discovers this in the lab. He finds that memories are actually changes or the creation of new proteins and synaptic connections. Now, that second half is really important here because when we come to Hebb and all these other people, they pick up on this idea um, it was already known in a sense by the time Candle uh, comes along here, but they pick up on that idea. But it's foundational here that Candle finds this link between experience of the world and biology and the neuro and the neural structure of the brain. Learning can now be seen as experience captured as cellular change, and he does that. You know, he, he discovers that. That may seem trivial, but. Nobody had come up with this before. Nobody had actually found out Mm -hmm. how memories were actually being stored in the brain. And then he goes on to look at the plasticity of a brain, how it might change in many ways, okay, with molecular modifications. It's quite clear to me that the brain is a material object uh, and that there has to be, um, we now know that it's a mixture of synaptic communications, a mixture of the chemical communications and the physical or electrical communications across the brain in terms of consolidation and reconsolidation of memories. So sorry that was long-winded, but he, he did a lot here. And he, I mean, no. he's just an, an amazing guy. And the fact that he did get the Nobel Prize is the big stamp of approval on his discoveries.
0: OK, we've got rather a lot of people this episode. so. Yeah. um uh, we, we could talk more about Candel, but I, th- I think it's probably an idea if we, we move on. Yeah, sure. Because um, there is a story here, a continuing story. Now, the next person we're looking at is Donald Olding, another Donald, Donald Olding Hebb, 1904 to 1985, a Canadian psychologist who was influential in the area of neuropsychology, where he sought to understand how the function of neurons contributed to psychological processes such as learning. His parents were both medical doctors and his mother, who was influenced by the ideas of Maria Montessori, homeschooled him until the age of eight. Um, after that, later on, he studied at McGill and Harvard. He's best known for his theory of Hebbian learning, which he introduced in his classic 1949 work, The Organization of Behaviour. He's been described as the father of neuropsychology and neural networks. Um, that's an important term, neural networks, occurring here for the first time. Also, and here's the first, I think, um, for Great Minds on Learning. He was a headmaster which presumably gave him the opportunity to try out his theories experimentally on beings other than rats. I should say, part of the reason why I, I, I persist with putting terrible jokes into these scripts is to prove that I'm not chat GP, GPT. Hebbian learning is also referred to as connectionism, one of a trio of isms that often gets confused. Uh, we're taking a little sidestep here to Disintermediate these. There's connectivism, invented by George Siemens and Stephen Downs, both of whom I've interviewed for the Learning Hack. And there's constructionism, which I think we'll get to in a couple of episodes. But connectionism, Donald, what is it?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, hebbian you, you could say that Donald Hebb was a connectionist, but that it's less to do with the other people you mentioned there. Really, he's built. I mean, this learning by association actually goes back to yeah. the British empiricists, and that's. Philosophers Locke and Hume and Mill, and then two other people who are really interesting here. A Scottish philosopher called Alexander Bain, who was much earlier, this is in the nineteenth century, who 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 almost hits a very a very important truth about neural networks in the brain. And William James, of course, also mentioned it. But yeah. you know, let's jump jump to Donald Hebb himself. And you, it was so important that you mentioned that the fact that he was a teacher and a headmaster in Montreal, John, because his inspiration for this was his experience with learners or the or the students he was teaching. And he he came out, he came at this problem, understanding that learning has very little to do with teaching, you know? You can teach good learning strategies and create the right environment for people to learn, but actually ultimately it comes down to the person and their motivation and their ability to learn. It all comes from the learner, okay? Mm. So how does that happen in this thing called the brain? The, the brain, or what is the physical nature of learning in the brain? Hebb really tackles this big time, okay? And he comes up, if you imagine all these neurons in the brain, little things sticking off the side of them, and they, they connect with other neurons. Now, we now know, Hebb didn't know this, we now know that it's not electrical connections that connect neurons, so that's part of the story. It's actually a chemical process. But put that to one side for the moment. <laughs> the Hebbian discovery is famously described... By just six words, neurons that fire together wire together. In other words, okay. when you when we take uh, when we take that idea that Candel had is how do we take experience and apply it to biology? If we have an experience and the neurons in our brain fire together, or in a, what, what Heb called a, a sem- cell assemblies, uh, we now call them neural groups or whatever, they fire together. And then they wire together. In other words, the Hebbian learning is that process of association. When you use your brain, it starts to store stuff as memories. It's like a muscle in that sense, but not literally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, actually, there's a much more detailed level of this because down at the cellular level, stick with me for a minute here, it gets a bit more complex. When the axon of one cell the bit that communicates with the next, is near enough to another cell, let's call that this sort of cell B, to excite it. So when cell A it excites through its axon cell B, okay, mm. and it starts to repeatedly fire off towards cell B, some growth or change, metabolic change, takes place in both cells. So when cell A fires, it affects cell B and both benefit from that, okay? So the A's efficiency as one of the, the cell that fired B is increased. So simply the firing or communication is a process by which the brain learns. Okay, I don't know if that was clear, but neurons that start to fire together wire together, hence we learn. <laughs> yeah. uh, it sounds well, that, that sounds right to us, but nobody knew this before, you know That's what Hebbian learning is. Okay, so it's a sort of physiological psychology, if you want, how the brain actually does this. And it's the first theory that really comes up with an actual mechanism for learning here, or the encoding of knowledge and memories in the brain, to be more specific
0: there.
2: He widens it out and and says, well, this happens in the brain all, all, all the time, not by individual neurons, but by cell assemblies, you know, groups of these things. He then took a leap of the imagination, this is more speculative, and thought that ideas were really what he called phase sequences. Now, there's whole numbers of these things uh, firing and therefore wiring together. Mm. This this is sort of basically true in a way because the brain, as we now know, is a highly distributed process when you take an MRI scan or whatever, any form of scan in the brain, when we're thinking. It's not some little localized path, like walking through the forest that sparks across the brain, but a massively sort of distributed uh, process. Some of it's localized, but it's quite widely distributed. This wiring really and, and firing really does take place when you have the mm-hmm. scans that Hebb never had when you looked at this problem. Now, there's a really interesting conclusion that Hebbs came to from this, which is why I really admire him so much. He thought that once you understand this is true, how does it affect learning and learning theory, which is what our podcast series is about? Mm. And actually, what he says is you should expose children and yourself as an adult to as many experiences as possible. Just get that get that firing and wiring going, guys. You know, let's get going with this. And he didn't believe in very narrow cast curricula. Or limiting children's experience. He thought that that's what you should be doing with kids. You should be opening up young minds to new ideas and new experiences, not a closing of the mind, but an opening the mind up. And, uh, you know, I, I, sadly, I don't think that's necessarily true of the educational system. I think there's a lot of closing young minds down as opposed to opening young minds up in that system with a very strict and narrow curriculum. Mm. And it's mostly a theoretical curriculum for a start, and no practical knowledge or vocational knowledge whatsoever, which yeah. is bizarre.
0: It's interesting as well that you say that you can't actually teach, that it has come from the learner. Uh, quite recently, the UK government has decided that everybody should be mandated to learn maths to the age of 18. Yes. Regardless of what they're interested in, which, which feels odd.
2: Yeah, well, every time some public school boy becomes prime minister, you know we get up some sort of daft idea like this. <laughs> so it, it was Latin. I remember that. God, I wrote tons on that. Debated it at the British Museum. The madness of that idea. I mean, that's recognised as just idiotic now. But now it's maths because it's because it's Richie Sunak and he's an economist by background. You know, this is just the arrogance of of the the private school system. Really, I think in the end of the day. And no doubt, it will be some other thing coming along here, but the idea is plainly absurd. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. <laughs> Actually, there might be one other thing that's mentioned with Hibs because there was there was. I think it's it's a balance here. There's that dark side to Hibs as well. Oh yes,
0: know, yes, the, uh, and, the torture.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, the the American government realised that he was onto something here, and at the same time, this was the Cold War. They, we suddenly had all these confessions by American spies in Russia and mm. others. And the American psychologist suddenly went, God, these Russians are onto something. How did he get these people to confess? Yeah. Yeah. And Manchurian
0: course, candidate and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah.
2: that's right. And the, the Russians had struck upon something, which Hebs had studied in detail, and he took his work, in fact, on sensory de- deprivation. And Hebs, to be fair, had used student volunteers. It wasn't sort of, you know, torture in that sense. Yeah. But the CIA has now subsequently found through declassified documents, funded a lot of research in this area. And the Americans, uh, <laughs> you know, sadly, I think through to Guantanamo and waterboarding, uh, actually, they started to do this. And it all came out of the Cold War, but let's not pretend that it's gone away. But I wouldn't blame Hebs for this. He's, he's long dead as it were, but uh, let's not pretend that the, there can be a dark side to discovering how to manipulate the brain.
0: Uh Okay, let's be charitable and say they were bringing balance to the force. We hope this podcast ups your knowledge about learning. But did you know learning podcasts, that's audio training created according to evidence-based principles, is a powerful and fast-growing medium? AssembleU is an audio-first provider with a ready-built course library to help your people improve productivity, leadership, well-being, and more in their downtime. AssembleU also creates audio courses unique to your company or institution. Try it free today at AssembleU.com/greatminds, all one word. So moving on: Warren Sturgis McCulloch, 1898 to 1969, and Walter Pitts, 1923 to 1969. They died in the same year. McCulloch was an American neurophysiologist and cybernetic, cybernetician. Born in New Jersey, uh, like Bruce Springsteen, and originally destined for the Christian ministry, unlike Bruce Springsteen. Studied at Yale and Columbia, qualified as an MD, again, and worked at a hospital for the insane. Later was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and then MIT, and he's most famous for the results of his work with Walter Pitts, the other part of this Tufa, Pitts a very different character, was a logician and mathematician who worked in the field of computational neuroscience. Born in the Motor City, Detroit, he was an autodidact and a prodigy and from a family that gave not two figs for learning, uh, it seems, and considered him a freak. At the age of 12, over three days in a library, he read Bertram Russell's Principia Mathematica, then wrote to Russell a letter telling him where he'd gone wrong. Russell was so impressed and taken up with his analysis, he offered him a place at Cambridge the age of 12 which Pitts, perhaps unsurprisingly didn't take up at 15 having kept up his correspondence with russell he ran away from home and his awful family to chicago where russell was a visiting lecturer and attended those lectures and then he continued to hang around at the university of uh, illinois in chicago um, and it was there he got together with mcculloch eventually who took him in Um, because he was homeless at the time and not officially registered with the university. He had some kind of menial job someone had found found for him there, rather than actually being registered as a student. He was an unusual person. We'd call him neurodiverse nowadays, I think. He refused to sign his name on anything, didn't even want his name to be attached to his work. Nevertheless, together with McCulloch, he authored two absolutely groundbreaking foundational papers, Donald, this stuff gets pretty complicated, and your mission impossible, should you accept it, is to explain their breakthrough in terms that even a humble English graduate could understand.
2: Yes, now we're getting to the heart of the matter because they, these two extremely bright people, you know, so McCulloch Pitts, especially, was clearly a genius. Yeah. But they were the first to create this link or create a mathematical model of a neuron. That sounds trivial, but it was a massive task. And it was inspired by the concept of a biological neuron. So this is where we get to this comparison between the biological brain and what, how we can build uh, something similar to or be inspired by the neural structure to give us artificial intelligence. This is the beginning of this journey. And we have to be careful here. Just because the word neuron sounds like neural network doesn't mean to say they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. But one did inspire there. It's a bit like flying. You know, we didn't learn to fly by studying the flapping of wings of a bird. We invented another form of technology that did it more efficiently using thrust and uh, and, and engines. So it's sim- inspired by, but not the same. Okay. Now, to to get down to the detail here, uh, they start with what we know about the brain. So we know we have these neurons, we know that they're networked, we know that they communicate with each other, the whole Hebbian learning story. That we know is true. Okay, so what these two guys come up, and they call them neural networks, so they call them nets actually, originally that was the the term they used. So if you take one of these individual neurons, they have soma and axons. So the synapses, the spaces between these cells that communicate with, with each other, between the axon of one, and the soma of another, a bit like two aerials, one on <laughs> each, of you mm-hmm. want to call it that. Uh, at any moment, every neuron has a sort of threshold. It's a bit like listening to your television. You can't, you can't actually hear anything on the volume button until it passes a threshold where your eye, ears can suddenly hear it. Mm. So every neuron has this threshold. And now that has to be exceeded by excitation to initiate an impulse and communicate with the next neuron. Now their breakthrough, a massive breakthrough here, through, was to represent all this in propositional logic or mathematics. So mm-hmm. they're replicating what actually happens in the brain in mathematics. Okay. Yeah. Now, this goes back to Leibniz. This had been uh, speculated upon, of course, before, uh, who thought, Leibniz himself thought that you could create whole propositions in the real world using this explanation. But let's, let's not go too much into, into the history of this. Now, what you've got here, is these neurons get preferences or synapses that come across in this model to produce an output, but it's a binary output. It's just switching on or off, okay? So the input, input into the whole process is two types. You can either excite a new cell or inhibit it, switch it on or off. That's what I mean by binary outputs. Okay. Now, what they do, that's quite simple. It's either on or off. That's the whole basis of modern computing. But they introduce another layer of complexity in here, which is why it's propositional logic, really. They introduce Boolean functions. Now, these are words like and. So Donald is Scottish and British. Okay, that's an and function. Or, uh, Donald uh, is male, or female, <laughs> what is it, you know, that that or function. Then there's the not function, so and or and not. These are three logical operators. Mm-hmm. And what these two guys did amazingly was represent that in mathematics. And I was speculating, not necessarily that the brain does it this way, but they have things called linear threshold gates, LTGs, which mimic what they think the brain does. So they have these things called logic gates, which are mechanisms in computers, that they think mimic how the brain works. They have and the gates. That's when all the inputs are on. So X and Y, all inputs on. There are or gates where only one input is on. So it's either X or Y, only one of those things. That's what or means. Hmm. And the neuron switches on when the threshold is passed. You know, that's what makes thought happen. Memories are created by that. Then you have not gates, Now, that's the inhibitory work in SIDNA. That's holding some back, going, hold on, let's not do that, okay? So, and, or, and not, the logic of all that can produce lots of very sophisticated ideas and real thinking, okay? Now, at this stage, remember, this is not about learning. This is just about the mechanism or the gates and the the ways in which the brain could work represented in mathematics. Yeah. Now, they took one other step. Sorry if this is a, a, it gets a bit esoteric, this really, but they took one other step, which is amazing at the time, it was 1947, and went to universals. So universals are general terms about the world. Uh, you know, uh, you have individual examples of dogs and breeds of dogs, but then you have the general universal, the word dogs, meaning all dogs. Mm-hmm. They thought that they, they came up with a, a mechanism for the explanation that all swans are white universals, again using the mechanisms of mathematics They do yeah. that a bit later in another paper but this the original paper uh, the the paper that you alluded to at the beginning which is called a logical calculus a logical calculus of ideas or something in the nerv- in nervous activity and that was in 1943
0: 1943
2: yeah yeah this had a profound effect on computer science really yeah. profound effect it gave us the opening gambit of a process that would take the rest of the century to complete, but at the end of the at the end of that process, we have chat GDP and something that blows our minds.
0: Yeah. I, there is so much in this that, that kind of made made me think. I mean that that last thing you talked about universals uh, yes. threw you back to Plato and the forms. Yeah. Yeah. you know Plato and Aristotle, the, the, you know the uh, Neo-Platonists. This endless deba- debate over over forms that that's kind of been a thing in philosophy. Uh, the thing about the threshold that the, the 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 voltage or whatever has to be of a certain limit to to kind of get through to make the connection. Am I wrong in thinking that that is a thing in the effective um, kind of domain of learning? Something that Nick Shuckton Jones makes a lot of that that, the, that the, you have to actually be, have to cross that threshold with with an input in order to make it memorable in any way in the first place. And in order, you know, we can't learn anything. We don't care about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, these guys were looking at straightforward propositional logic, you know, which is the mathematics of it. But the threshold thing certainly explains the effect of our emotional thing that, you know, yeah. that, that you you can feel that rushing through the brain, you know, jealousy, rage, anger, whatever it is, love. Yeah, It, it certainly has an... An explanationary thing there. Go, going back, and I think that's definitely true. But going back to the universals thing, you're right. You know, if you one thing that really puzzled people about the brain is we can think of a circle, a platonic circle, mm-hmm. but we can think of different sizes of circles. We can see them shrinking. The Gestalt psychologists, behaviorists, and most cognitive psychology didn't have an adequate explanation for this, and it was it's proved very difficult in artificial intelligence to cope with universals. <laughs> you may say that. The, really the recent history of artificial intelligence has been coping with how do you identify dogness or catness, catness you know you've got lots of images of cats how do you how do we know it's a cat <laughs> as opposed mm. to something else as opposed to you know a dog for example oh. and that we will come to that uh, in a moment actually through perceptrons it's a nice link here but oh, yep. we start to make progress through the next stage
0: yeah, can I have one more query about this? So sorry to kind of lengthen the the, the time of the podcast out, but I just found this so interesting. It it, it does seem to me that this is—I I don't think it's exaggerating—so that this is the major shock to that that is perhaps comparable to Darwin and what that did to religion, because what this basically says is that your thinking is maths. Thinking is maths. Yeah. Um, People on the kind of art side of the, you know, the 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 two communities that CP Snow talked about, are just outraged by this and continue to be outraged by it. And it's something that we're kind of working through and living through now. I think it, it it's the biggest shock really since since Darwin um, to the way people think about consciousness and themselves and communication and everything. Thinking is maths.
2: Yes, that, well, that's right. I mean, when I wrote my book on AI for learning, here, know, I, I was really really clear what I, I personally think about this and that this is a, this is second only to writing probably in terms of the technological revolutions we've had in the history of our species. But it's different from writing. Writing is just really us uh, manifesting our ideas externally so we can share them with others. Mm. This is something way beyond that. This is us creating technology that is better than us or can be better. And that's quite clearly happening in all sorts of individual small domains, whether it's playing checkers, chess, Go, computer games, uh, AI can beat us hands down. But suddenly it comes along and produces, well, let's talk about, just briefly chat, GTP. GTP. GTP is an amazing thing, but it's not that amazing. It's just producing a lot of text. But let's think of the number of human beings on this planet who do that for a living. Me. You know? <laughs> you know? Now, we're getting quite close to producing sort of report-level text that's better than humans or certainly the same as or as as good as. So if you're doing something that ChatGTP can be doing, should you be doing it at all? <laughs> really, it's a very good question. Yeah. And that shows how revolutionary this is. I should okay. ask
0: G, uh, ChatGPT to, to write the scripts for these and insert some stupid jokes. I'm sure he <laughs> can manage it, actually.
2: Well, the, the thing about it, the, the interesting thing is there are whole areas of human uh, endeavor, of course, that it can't do at all, like yeah. jokes. Well, it actually can do. There are a lot of joke generators and AI, lots of them, and they, they're quite good, actually. But they can't do this sort of fluid dialogue that we are having on this podcast, John. But it's mm-hmm. getting there. That's the thing. Don't regard AI as some fixed entity. You know, GTP 2 was quite passable. It could write a poem, by, it could take a poem by Wallace Stevens, and it did famously, and then produce a poem eh, that we might think was written by Wallace Stevens, and, and human beings could not tell the difference. It was so good in terms of style. GTP3, which we're dealing with now, is way beyond that. GTP4, which is coming out this year, will be several orders of magnitude bigger and better. And so... Things are happening very, very fast here. But it was, for me, quite predictable. You know, when I wrote the book, you know, oh, when, when you give talks at learning conferences and there's people just poo-poo, oh, it's never going to replace a teacher and so on. Suddenly, yeah. suddenly that proposition is looking a bit dodgy. <laughs> so yeah. I, think it's, I think it's a, I think it is a Darwinian paradigm shift. I, I, I've i always thought that I, I don't, and we're really merely at the beginning of this process. We're okay. at this sort uh, of, You know, the 1859 Darwin stage where Origin of Species has just been published and we're suddenly seeing, we're going, holy shit, this is happening.
0: We've got a bit wide focus, and maybe we should leave some of that for for the the summing up at the end, but let's dive back into the detail with our next theorist, Frank Rosenblatt, uh, born 1928, uh, died 1971, an American psychologist, sometimes called the father of deep learning, born in New Rochelle, New York, studied at Cornell, and then went on to the Cornell Aeronautical Laboratory in Buffalo, New York, where he was successively a research psychologist, senior psychologist, and actually head of the cognitive systems section. Rosenblatt had wide ranging research interest, and he also had a hinterland, which is what we say in the UK a lot, um, in other places as well, for what normal people would call a hobby. He, he, he had interests beyond um, his métier. He was active in liberal politics, for instance, and um, anti-Vietnam War protests. He was interested in astronomy to the point where he built an observatory on a hill behind his home to search for alien life. He died young in a tragic boating accident in 1971, not long after Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert had attempted to rubbish the discovery for which he is most famous, perceptrons, as a result of which funding dried up for his particular branch of research for a while. Donald, those two were subsequently proved wrong, weren't they? But tell us about the perceptrons. What is a perceptron?
2: Right. So, so far we've been discussed, we've discussed the way in which McCulloch and Pitt described and or not typological mechanisms in the brain, okay, for making it happen, that sort of neural structure. We haven't come to learning yet. And what uh, Frank Rosenblatt, uh, Rosenblatt gives us is the concept of a neural network that can learn okay so suddenly learning is on the, on the table and he thinks we learn by trial and error now it's called a perceptron because his work was initially in the area of perception okay identifying mm-hmm. objects in vision and speech okay that's really what he was after and of course we now know that computers can do that pretty well now. You know, we've we've transcended that. You know, I can speak to my A-L-E-X-A in the corner. I had to spell it out in case she yep. marks off. Uh, so all that stuff's come to pass. But what he does is actually build one. <laughs> the Perceptron is actually a real thing. It's actually in the Smithsonian Museum in the US. And what it is, is... First of all, something that takes input is a, a grid of 20 by 20 photo cells, a little camera that makes up a 400 pixel image, okay? If you imagine a little sort of grid like that, 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 that takes light uh, from the outside world or experiences, okay? He, has, he, he builds that, but then there's a whole load of weightings. How do you actually learn? How do you make his machine learn? He had to do this using physical technology because the software was nowhere near as good at that time. Mm. Uh, you are know, talking about 1960s, early 1960s here. Uh, what he has are variable resistors that you find in old radios and so on that provide the weighted learning and they're delivered by electric motors that turn physical dials on these resistors. <laughs> it's a bit sort of Heath Robinson, really.
0: A bit steampunk, really.
2: Yes, it, it is. But, of course, he was trying to do something that was incredibly difficult ahead of the technology because we didn't have the software or hardware to do it well. But this is why he's such an amazing character. Uh, you know, His aim was to build a, essentially a learning algorithm, you might call it that, that mm. learns when you see things. So if you do something or see something or hear something, like identifying a cat or a dog or whatever, then the Perceptron actually learns from its errors. Now this is the important point. The Perceptron is an error learning machine. Okay, so over time, it actually learns to recognize a cat, okay, because the shape of the cat, because it's constantly having an attempt to match what it knows with what it's seeing, it eventually learns what catness is. Now, as you rightly said, Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert. uh, there's another construct constructivism he came up with. I don't really yeah. much like those terms, connectivism, constructivism, construct, you know,
0: constructionism. Yeah,
2: they're, they're often confused and uh, I don't think very helpful at times. He wrote a book called Perceptrons in 1969 that absolutely slammed, absolutely slammed uh, uh, Rosenblatt's theory. But who won out in the day? In a sense, Rosenblatt had the last laugh here because it's turned out that they were wrong. They had a point actually, because you know how we were discussing those logical functions and hmm. or and not. There is another logical function uh, called x or, and that's called the exclusive or function, you know, x or y but type function. That's a more complex okay. lo- bit of logic, as it were. So uh, now he, th- the- Minsky and Papert thought that the perceptron, as defined by Ro- Rosenblatt, could not solve the XOR problem. That was the basis of, of their critique, as it were. But actually, it came to pass that it was a solvable problem, okay? And unfortunately, Rosenblatt didn't live to see the, See this. Mm. And the, the peculiar thing, <laughs> he didn't live to see the really good research on his insights, because he died in a boating accident literally just after Minsky and Papert's book was published. I think it's a sad story here really because he got slammed by two people who turned out to be wrong uh, and he was left with that in his mind when he died. You know, he didn't see the fruits of his labor come to pass. But of course, we have seen it come to pass. There's still people who think that... uh, that the, the, the perceptron model is has its limitations i think you know that that's true but deep learning emerged from this one invention and has now become central in artificial intelligence rosenblatt's perception hasn't just succeeded and survived it's become absolutely central to progress in ai that's why he's such an important figure
0: i think this is such an interesting story that's emerging here for, for people like me who, who haven't heard it in detail it, it it does get a bit detailed and kind of difficult to follow but it, it, it's just brilliant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. So let's carry on. David Everett Rummelhart, 1942 to uh, 2011, and Geoffrey Everest Hinton, born 1947, still among us. This is our next two facts. I like the word perceptron because it makes me think of 1960s science fiction shows on TV, like Doctor Who. We are the perceptrons. But I'm less attracted to the term we're going to encounter next, back propagation. To be honest, it sounds a bit mucky, but bit agricultural. But I'm sure after you've finished explaining it, Donald, it'll be my new favourite word. So to whom do we owe this particular coinage? Let's find out. David Everett Rummel was an American psychologist who made many contributions to the formal analysis of human cognition, working primarily within the frameworks of mathematical psychology, symbolic artificial intelligence and parallel distributed processing. Born in South Dakota, studied psychology and mathematics at the University of South Dakota and Stanford, taught at universities of California, San Diego and Stanford. An illustrious academic career he had with many awards, including a prestigious MacArthur Fellowship, the uh, the genius grant, sadly cut short by Pick's disease, a progressive neurodegenerative condition, um, uh, similar to what Stephen Hawkins uh, suffered from, I think. Geoffrey Hinton, his partner, is a British Canadian cognitive psychologist and computer scientist, born in Wimbledon, where they do all the tennis, most noted for his work on artificial neural networks, works for Google, and the University of Toronto. In 2017, he co-founded and became the chief scientific advisor of the Vector Institute in Toronto. Rumelhart Hart and Hinton were co-authors of a highly cited paper published in 1986 that popularized the backpropagation algorithm for training multilayer neural networks. Okay, Donald, this is the bit where you make us all love that word, backpropagation.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, back. But- Back propagation is quite a complex mathematical idea as applied in artificial intelligence, and you mentioned two people so far: David Rumelhart, incredibly right. important, because he he basically invents back propagation. We'll come to what it is in a minute, along with another guy called James McClelland, who and uh, James McClelland he also took that on board because it, it runs. With another concept called parallel distributed processing in other words the idea that the, we have parallel processing across the brain and across neural networks as well okay this is relevant to the understanding of cognition but it opens up the possibility of these a model for neural processing that's what sort of and when i say neural processing i mean in neural networks that's what back propagation is you have david Rumelhart, then you have jeffrey everest uh Hinton, and everybody in AI would know that name. You know, he's he's one of the gods of the of this world, as it were. He contributes massively to this. And another name I'll just throw in here, and that's Yann LeCun. He's a French uh, AI genius, really. <laughs> he's the chief AI scientist at Facebook, a professor at, uh, at New York University. He's revered in the AI community as a pioneer of this work as well. So you have these three big names, Rumo Hart, Geoffrey Hinton, Yann LeCun. And uh, you know, people in AI generally would know at least the, the latter two of those. So, back propagation in this 1986 paper, "Learning Representations by Back Propagating Errors." You know, if there's one paper that really sort of, uh, acts as a springboard for modern AI, it's this paper. But it's incredibly difficult to explain what <laughs> back propagation is. But if I try by analogy here, if you imagine yourself climbing a hill, uh, but you you you're blindfolded. And you might just feel forward with your foot. Okay. So you're tapping away with your foot and you find the point at which it's got the steepest ascent. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you tap away. Oh, that's the steepest bit. You take a step forward. Eventually you will get mathematically get to the top of the hill if you do that. Now, similarly, on the descent coming back down, you might feel around for the feel around by with your foot for the steepest step back down, and on you go. And mathematically, you will get to the bottom of the hill. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is a gradient ascent, but it's also a gradient descent. Now, when you get these gradient descents in these perceptrons that we've been talking about, what you're doing is tweaking the weights as you go to lower the error rate. So this is all about you may call it optimization. Yeah. Okay, so you're coming back, but you're lowering your error rate all the time until you get it right. You do it time and time and time again, layer by layer. That's why neural networks have layers. But there's a problem here. Supposing you're climbing a mountain with little peaks, and I was got a little peak, and then you start coming down again. You have to, before you go back up again. That's what the XOR problem is in many ways. You know, it's a it's a logical problem that has to be solved. But in actual fact, back propagation can solve that problem as we've found. So this is a very sophisticated mathematical method, as it were, for optimization by calculating this the sort of these sort of errors. What you might call the backward propagation of errors. That's why it's called back propagation. Okay. and this is what if you take these neural networks or the layered neural networks this allows them to be trained so if we take deep mind and alpha go which beat you know there are more moves in the game go than there are atoms in the entire universe but they had a system that they trained on go uh, until it was so good it beat the best Go player in the world now there are many aspects of deep learning and neural networks, layered neural networks that are doing amazing things, amazing things. And they're largely based on back propagation. Not all of them, there's other forms of reinforcement learning and so on that are quite different. But uh, what was interesting here, and this is what has given it's particularly applicable in error prone areas. So things like speech, which are really difficult to interpret mm. or create, or image recognition, you know, how do we know that's a cat as opposed to a duck? Or a dog. These or are links. really tricky yeah. problems, but this is what this type of thinking and technical build, mathematical software build, has given us in AI, and it now can do all those things pretty well. Now, at the same time as the uh, the figures I've mentioned there, which is the the Hinton Rumelhart and Hinton, where Yann LeCun who also discovers back propagation in France exactly at exactly the same time. Mm. So it's worth mentioning him as well. Okay, there were in fact another, as we found, there's been another. It's all sorts of sources for this, but this ultimately gives us the sort of products we see in AI today uh, that are blowing our socks off. You know, yeah. so the influence of back propagation, neural networks, and back propagation—you uh, know—it um, it, it sort of started with the recognition of simple words, and you know, you know, but it then moved into stock market prediction, we had huge success. My next door neighbor actually worked in that area. Uh, and uh, turned down a job at DeepMind, interestingly, because yeah. you're getting so much money in this other area. Self-driving cars might be a good example. How do you calculate those? You know, those? How do you optimise the recognition of a deer that jumps in front of the car, for example? That would be a good example. So mm. this has been essential for progress in deep learning. So uh,
0: it's about that kind of um, constant error, correction, feedback loop, feeding into re- re- refining the knowledge and and learning and have we moved away from um we started with a kind of exploration of how the brain works how human brains work the gray squidgy stuff now we're more talking about um how how computers uh, can operate in in, yes. in machine learning sure. have we moved away from this or are we still in a way working out in, in other words d- does the human brain do back propagation or is it just something that's useful if you're trying to comp- uh, program a computer
2: well this is where this is where we have to be very careful of a sort of metaphorical thinking or anthropomorphizing here. It's yeah. not clear that the brain, and there's no evidence that the brain does back propagation as such, okay. greatly, but they, it may be a similar mechanism. It's certainly clear that we have to optimize things in real time to simply walk through a room. <laughs> uh, you know, the brain is an evolved organ. We have a spatial sense, you know, and we're doing it in real time so that we don't fall over, bump into things and so on. Uh, and so clearly we do this process of optimization and it must be doing it somehow. Now, there are those who believe in the computational model of the brain. I'm one of those people. I do believe that's true. That's not, that doesn't mean to say you believe in this back computational model. Uh, there's a sort of strong and weak form of computational models in the brain. And I, uh, you know, it's yet to be discovered as it were, but I still think it's completely fundamentally mathematical and computational, and that we can find that out how it works. And yeah. there are those who think that consciousness is the hard problem that it's irreducible, uh, people, you know, and that you can't really solve that problem. That's more of a philosophical uh, problem.
0: At the moment, we yeah, have
2: to, we have to be careful here in imagining that and, and jumping to the conclusion, which was behind your question, John, that the brain thinks this way. There is no evidence for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it the comp- doing
2: yeah. this in an entirely different way because it's a biological substrate using for example chemical communications between neurons now that doesn't exist at all in the computing world mm. but interesting thing you can draw from this it may be that the severe limitations of our brains its chemical the chemical basis of neural transmission is its big drawback and the fact that we're limited to this little thing that has to be packed inside our skull because the comp computation or computers can ha- have very large memories, <laughs> uh, huge memories, in fact, which is what ChatGTP is based on or is trained on and draws upon. It has a digital memory that is right. It doesn't get confused. Whereas our brains age and indeed we die, whereas you can have permanently stored digital memories. We have very poor working memories, for example. Which, are, which is a, an evolutionary advantage, but it doesn't necessarily have an advantage when you're doing advanced mathematics, for example. So let's not imagine that the human brain is something we should be aspiring to here. Uh, what AI is doing is transcending many of those features of the human brain.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think what I'd, I wanted to say was that um, since we've been looking at, at, at these questions from the cognitivist onwards, there's been this sort of comparison of, of the, the human brain and the computer, which is very useful in working out how, you know, long-term, short-term memory worked in terms of storage. And we've been talking about it a lot today as well. But it now seems that this, that, that kind of metaphorical connection between brain and, and machine causes as many problems as it, as, as it solves, uh, yeah. especially for the public understanding.
2: I think no. it's a dialectic, John. You know, we'll come to Demis Haspis, where there's a very clear example of somebody who studies cognition in the brain, the hippocampus, and then builds deep mind, which changes AI forever. There's a dialectic here, and that some people have been inspired, like Hebs and so on, by the structure of the brain to create a theory. And then, of course, we have the perceptron, which is a physical model of neurotransmission. There's are some people who have taken the inspiration of the brain into AI, but there's also inspiration going the other way as well, and speculation that maybe this AI stuff isn't covering how we actually think as well. That's more in the Bayesian side. So you have people who believe that uh, our brains are predictive engines, and that actually they have to be like that in order to simply walk through a room. You have to try and be forwardly thinking or predicting what's going to happen next, and updating your prediction all the time. I think that that's far closer to a likely mechanism in the brain than perhaps back propagation, for example. Okay. So, so this is you know look upon it not as a a look at at more as a dialectic between AI and neuroscience. It it works both ways here, but be be very wary, as you rightly said there, of being taking metaphors as truth. That would be a mistake.
0: Okay, let's move on to Demis Hassabis now, born 1976, starting to make feel very old. A British entrepreneur, CEO, and, and sorry, I'll try and say that without a kind of um, British exceptionalism uh, glow of pride. <laughs> or maybe I won't. A British entrepreneur, CNO and co-founder of, co-founder of DeepMind and Isomorphic Labs, and a UK government AI advisor. Um, Maybe the education department ought to listen to him. Born in London to a Greek Cypriot father and a Chinese Singaporean mother. Hasabius was briefly homeschooled by his parents. Bit of a theme there. During which time he bought a first computer, uh, a ZX Spectrum 48K. And many of our listeners now will be um, getting very excited about that. The the nerdier ones among us. uh, Which he funded from chess winnings Um, a very successful chess player, very young, and taught himself how to program from books. Remember them? Studied at Cambridge and UCL. In his early career, he was a video game AI programmer and designer and an expert player of board games. Uh, but given the context that last bit hardly feels like hinterland uh, games suddenly become very important in in ai donald i think most of our audience will have heard of deep mind but can you join the dots for us how do we assess her contribution to ai and most importantly to learning
2: yeah well Dems is a fascinating character really as you say he was british uh, uh, jeff hinton was also british uh, british born but the What's interesting about Demis is he does come from this rather odd background, as it were. And he he's a he's quite well known in the games world because he 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 was the he was the designer, you know, conceptual guy and lead programmer of the very famous game Theme Park. Theme Park was a fascinating game because it had all this AI intelligence in it way back in the day. So, you know, he he was famous before all of this in the games world as a genius games designer and programmer. But what he does is something quite interesting. He goes off into academia well, wow. and he studies the hippocampus, this thing at the back of our brain, uh, which is where episodic memory is consolidated. You know that, what did I do in the pub type, you know, almost like video recall of events from the previous night, the previous day, or what, what did we do in New Year's evening? Uh, and he found that studies through brain damaged patients was one thing he looked at. It, it was caused by damage to this part of the brain called the hippocampus. Okay, and what you what happens when you have a damaged hippocampus is you not only lose memories, you lose your ability to plan and imagine the future. Now that's interesting. So you suddenly have this link between how we remember things and how we predict or imagine the future. It seems as though, not that they're exactly one and the same thing, but they're certainly very close. Mm. This is an amazing, a fascinating insight in in, in, the, in, in a way. He takes this idea, comes out academia after having written a couple of really important papers, and looks at this process of reinforcement in learning. Okay, you might call it just practice makes perfect. You know how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. practice, practice. You know? that's that's what that's what that's what really matters in the learning process. So he has this link between episodic memory and future imagination and creativity and thinking what can could be the case. And he backs it up with all sorts of science. This is a guy who really knows the cognitive science and the neuroscience. And he comes up with this thing called scene construction. And I he thinks the brain, it's a bit like it's a bit like Roger Shank's script model. Not only for recalling memories, which and, and and so the brain, in a sense, is a, a sort of like a simulation engine. You know, it's like a little internal theater we can imagine future scenarios. So he then applies this that. To, he then uses machine learning, which is well established in AI, and uh, sets up a company in 2010. This is quite recently, 2010, called DeepMind. Okay. Now, what DeepMind focused on at the beginning was taking these really complex tasks, like beating somebody at chess or Go, and without any prior knowledge or training, and can beat the beat that person. That's the key point. The AI can learn to do anything. So traditionally the, the learning professional world saw so human beings and animals as sometimes, but inferior learners and teachers. Suddenly we're a new kid in the block with bits of technology that can learn. Bits of technology that can actually learn. And maybe they can actually teach. And I think that's certainly going to be the case. So the first system was a thing called Breakout. Uh, it not only got as good as any human, it actually, <laughs> Breakout is a computer game. And this is how, how amazing this was when it happened. Breakout was so clever it did something that no human had ever done before. It went around the edge and attacked from above. This is something that no human player had ever tried before and of course mm-hmm. could therefore beat any human player. So their system became more imaginative, more creative, more competent than any human who had ever played the game Breakout in history. That's why DeepMind managed to tackle things like chess. And I really would highly recommend that people look at the AlphaGo documentary on Netflix. It is an amazing film that shows the revelation during that process of how strong, I mean, during uh, during the games, it beat Lee Seval, who was the world Go champion. It beat him 5-1 in South Korea and Seoul. That game at the time was a like holy grail in AI. You know the, As I say, the number of possible moves, greater than the number of total atoms in the universe. Uh, they trained the model by playing loads of good amateurs, applied deep neural networks, things that they thought existed in the brain. And hey, presto, it beats the world champion, alpha fold. It then goes on to do an amazing thing. They have alpha fold. That's a, a protein folding tool that predicts the 3D structure of proteins just from the amino acid sequences. This saves millions, if not billions, in research and lab time and money, uh, because you don't actually have to go into the lab to predict the protein structure. This is incredibly important, a foundational thing in cancer and, and many other areas of medical research. This is how fast this is developing now. Incidentally, they also reduced the energy bill by in Google data centers by 40% using the same software. So okay. it's so that you Keep know, the, the Yeah, people think AI is not having any effect in the world. <laughs> you think again, guys. It's transforming the world. You know, mm. and uh, I think it, it, we should be proud that you, you know that came out of London is one of the leading companies in the world. is that it is the beating heart of Google now, DeepMind. So all the way from Heb, all the successes we've been talking about, we found out actually, AI using the techniques that were built slowly or surely over the 20th century can suddenly be a very sophisticated learner, can start to be competent. Of course, this is competence without comprehension. It's not conscious in any way. It's not a human being in any way, but it can do the things that human beings can do and sometimes a lot better. And in the learning sphere, I think this is important, which is why I wrote that book on uh, AI and learning. We have to waken up here. This is, hap- this is now happening. Uh, and are we using it? No, we're still doing, you know, text graphic, text graphic, multiple choice question. (laughs) You know, uh, know, it's plainly absurd that we're not using smart platforms, smart intelligent content, smart data uh, to improve the learning world. Because we will. Resistance is futile. You know, this is going to happen. It's just that we seem to be plowing the same old furrows. You should Uh, say
0: we're not using it yet, Donald. Growth mindset.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. We have all sorts of bullshit, uh, you know, associated concepts and words with this. But uh, to be fair, we're starting to use it because there are people like Lenenko, would be a good example of this. I think uh, one of the best examples, who suddenly got the AI message, you know, and uh, applied it for real in their technology, and they do, you know, all the training for some of the biggest, you know. People like KFC and Taco Bell with you know, people with hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of employees, a quarter of a million who leave every month. These they, these are now become big data problems, but mm. they use that data in a very clever way to inform the content and the way those people are trained. I, I myself have been doing lots of you know, I, I, I invested in an adaptive learning company that was bought for cash by Cambridge University, and there's no way that teachers can do the sort of personalization and adaptation. Uh, as people are vectoring through courses that software can. So that will happen. We now see content production actually happening, not only text production using uh, ChatGTP, but also image production using DALI and a whole rack of other tools. We'll see video production. We'll see very sophisticated things happening in the learning field over the next few decades that will change that landscape forever. And I mean, make it better, faster, and cheaper. This is really important because who would deny that it's an esoteric system. You know, that whole Ivy League high-end university system is built on scarcity, keeping things away from people. It's not an open, democratic, decentralized system. It's an elitist, hierarchical system limited to the few, not the many. So Mm -hmm. I think we have a chance here, a glimpse at what may happen. (laughs)
0: I think we've moved there into the, the what we'd normally say was the, the kind of summing up section and looking forward but I, I think you've nailed it there and i think you know just to keep this to reasonable length it, it we probably arrived at a, a good finish point here sure so thank you very much for that donald I, i've learned a huge amount um should use verbs like learned (laughs) fairly carefully, given some of the content of this series, but I feel as if I've learned an awful lot today, uh, and I hope the listeners have as well. So thanks a lot.
2: No problem. It's an interesting story, and one I think that uh, should be recognized as an astounding, as you said, almost as important as the, the precursor period before Darwin, you know, it really is that important.
1: Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. Sound edit is by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. Graphics by David O'Connor. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. If you're a fan of these podcasts and want to support us and get exclusive member benefits, go to patreon.com forward slash